Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A small reminder, this episode is actually brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails at T-Shirts. Because what else will we be sponsored by? At the moment, I'm actually wearing a When Diplomacy Fails t-shirt. They are very comfortable. They are very soft. And what better way to wear your clothing than to spread the word about the baby? If you're interested in purchasing a t-shirt, I would recommend you go to either historytees.net and click on the podcast selection at the side. Or you go to the When Diplomacy Fails official website, because that's how advanced we are now. www.wdfpodcast.com and simply click on the t-shirt banner. Make sure to use the code WDF16 to get your discount. And start wearing and representing When Diplomacy Fails podcast today. With that out of the way, guys, I'm really excited to get into this, so let's begin. Welcome to WDF Asks, Is Westphalia Overrated? Part 3. In this third and final part, we're going to attempt to wrap up the question by combining all we've learned. So if you haven't listened to the previous two episodes, I would strongly recommend doing so now. Last time we dropped some serious knowledge. Much of it was quite shocking. I since received some great feedback from people letting me know they couldn't believe how incredibly overblown the piece of Westphalia has been by historians. However, if you were waiting for me to simply deliver the one-two punch and straightforwardly take the side of the anti-Westphalians in this debate, you may be disappointed. What conclusion will I arrive at, and how will I reconcile what I thought I knew with what I know now? Well, it's time to find out, in this final instalment of WDF Asks. I will now take you to the hallowed halls of debate, where we ask for the last time... Is Westphalia overrated? The stunning rebuke of the Peace of Westphalia conducted by the anti-Westphalians in the last episode, deserves summarising and further reflection here, 
So if you lost all your marbles after the previous revelations regarding 1648, then fear not. Before we jump into this though, a word on the structure. If we were to just throw the different opinions out there, things would probably get a bit messy, or more messy than they already are, so instead we're going to split the debate into different categories. Three to be precise. The first is sovereignty and the balance of power, wherein we'll examine the claims both camps have to those issues and their importance or relevance to the Peace of Westphalia. The second is religion, where we'll look at arguably the Westphalians' best card and see what the anti-Westphalians can realistically offer in response. The third category to measure the debate by is in the perpetuation of conflict. Here we'll examine the oft-repeated claim that 1648 somehow made Europe more peaceable, or at least made it less likely that Europeans would fight for the sake of religious or traditional reasons. The last bit of the episode then will see me add my own take on the debate, and why I believe the Peace of Westphalia holds such an aura of symbolism, to the point that we had to actually ask whether it was overrated in the first place. So with that important bit of housekeeping out of the way, hopefully this episode will flow a little better and the debate will seem more natural. A quick refresher before you roll your eyes, Westphalians believe that the Peace of Westphalia is not overrated, and they extol its significance while anti-Westphalians believe that the Peace of Westphalia is overrated, and they want to burn its overrated edifice down to the ground with slick logic. So let's begin, as we examine the first category. Category 1, Sovereignty and the Balance of Power. Above all, we learned last time, courtesy of the anti-Westphalians and Andreas Osiander in his shocking article, that sovereignty and what we would recognise as the emergence of the modern state system was never even alluded to in the Peace of Westphalia. There was no romantic association of this 1648 peace with the beginning of a new era built on state independence and freedoms, and no balance of power system was created to take the place left by the Holy Roman Emperor either. This was because, as we also learned, the Holy Roman Emperor and his prerogatives weren't mentioned in the Peace of Westphalia either. Dutch independence wasn't even part of the official peace, since the Spanish and Dutch resolved their differences provisionally in January 1648 and then finally by May, a near half-year before Imperials, the French and the Swedes, sat down to treat in Osnabrück and Münster. Thus, sovereignty, the balance of power and Dutch independence Arguably three of the biggest talking points of the Peace of Westphalia don't even figure in the actual historical treaty. What say the Westphalians in response? Westphalians followed the ideology of Leo Groes, who wrote in 1948 and reinforced the romantic idea that the modern state system emerged in 1648 thanks to the decline in the Holy Roman Emperor's powers and his retreat from Europe proper. The Emperor, Ferdinand III, Westphalians argue, was no longer capable of projecting his power across Europe, and thus Europeans could fend for themselves without having to defer to his traditional authority. That traditional authority was eliminated at the Peace of Westphalia. Except it wasn't, since as the anti-Westphalians made clear, the historical fact is that the Emperor and sovereignty were both not even mentioned at the Peace of Westphalia. You could argue about people's different interpretations, but the fact is that 
with their major point of debate having no basis in the historical reality, Westphalians do have to acknowledge defeat in this battle. They could hardly argue for the existence of clauses which were never actually there, could they? As ahistorical as it might sound, Westphalians may be tempted to adopt what I like to call the significance debate. In other words, though the Peace of Westphalia didn't actually contain articles on sovereignty, history after 1648 progressed in a certain direction, so that by the 20th century, in Leo Groza's time, state sovereignty could certainly be recognised as a definite device. Westphalians would argue that because state sovereignty thus existed, we must attribute its existence to some cause, even if it cannot definitively be proven that such a cause was intended by those that incepted and signed the Peace of Westphalia. I shouldn't have to tell you what's wrong with arguing in such a counter-historical way. If we support the Peace of Westphalia on the basis of how history progressed after 1648, then we make the same mistake generations of historians have made since. We ignore the actual treaties and will assign our own values, principles and expectations to the Peace of Westphalia in their place. This is of course wrong, therefore I must stand with the anti-Westphalians on this one. In the category of sovereignty and the balance of power, and the idea that the Peace of Westphalia transformed Europe into a more modern network of states, we have to give one point to the anti-Westphalians. It's simply too hard to support the Westphalians on the basis of arguments which have no basis in concrete fact. However, if you're a traditionalist and you like your piece of Westphalia, then fear not. The next category is religion, something which Westphalians surely stand on firmer ground with. Category 2. Religion The piece of Westphalia, so says the traditional narrative, solved the century of conflict resulting from the Reformation, which had so divided Europe, never mind the HRE. It did this by allowing freedom of worship regardless of what the state religion of a German prince was. If you were a Bavarian Lutheran or a Saxon Catholic or an Austrian Calvinist, you could now worship the way you wanted. After decades of one's religious persuasion determining your security and place in society, the Peace of Westphalia suggested that now all could live in harmony. It was, one could argue, an early form of live and let live. Religious freedoms, Westphalians would be inclined to argue, had finally arrived. But are the Westphalians right in their assertions? In the last episode, the anti-Westphalians were notably silent on the impact that the religious articles had on Europe. Did this mean their scholarly proponents admit defeat in this category? Certainly, religious freedoms, however limited they may have been to Lutheran, Catholic and Calvinist denominations, allowed for a certain level of religious tolerance not seen in Europe in living memory, and perhaps ever. So, on what grounds can the anti-Westphalians contest it? And how can they do so in the spirit of proving that Westphalia is overrated? Simply put, in a kind of similar vein to the previous category... Anti-Westphalians may not have cause to oppose the notion that religious freedoms were introduced, but they would have justifiable grounds to challenge the notion that religious freedoms became the norm. The religious elements in the Peace of Westphalia, anti-Westphalians are eager to emphasise, only applied to the HRE proper, 
and outside of that only applied to how much France and Sweden interacted with the Holy Roman Empire. What this meant in practical terms was that neither Sweden nor France would have rights to impose their own religious settlements on any state of the Holy Roman Empire, however small, but that France and Sweden could carry on as they liked with their own religious policies at home. This important but rarely mentioned caveat, anti-Westphalians insist, explains why there seems to be such a contradiction between what the Peace of Westphalia promises Europe and what it delivers in the decades to come. The Peace of Westphalia didn't promise Europe anything. This is because it was not a treaty addressed to Europe, but to the Holy Roman Empire. Thus, the debate going forward would see Westphalians and anti-Westphalians argue over which point is more important. Westphalians insist that the decline in religious animosity and distrust in the Holy Roman Empire eventually spread to the rest of Europe, and that thus, even if it only applied to the Holy Roman Empire, it was in time a far more significant religious settlement than it may first appear. Anti-Westphalians would respond with the charge that Westphalians ignore the religious conflicts which permeated European society until the French Revolution, most notably in the case of the French Huguenots, but plainly as well in the case of the British Empire, where in the latter half of the 17th century, Charles II was unable to push any kind of religious toleration bill past Parliament during his reign and where his brother James was deposed because the same parliament feared the implications of a Catholic king. Such actions were not those of a Europe influenced by the religious freedoms promised by the Peace of Westphalia. Anti-Westphalians also point to the determined Catholicism of Louis XIV, and the fear other European states had of him and France somehow erecting a Catholic universal monarchy at the heart of the continent. However, Although you couldn't claim that the Peace of Westphalia brought religious freedom to Europe, it definitely represented the turning of a corner for the most religiously divided polity on the continent, and that in itself is hugely significant. It is interesting to see this in a way because it actually goes hand in hand with the Westphalians' arguments over sovereignty to take their side here. If we say that religious freedoms in the Holy Roman Empire led to peace and cooperation between German states and that such a peace led to greater feelings of commonality and togetherness, then it is easy to see how Westphalians for so long managed to connect the sovereignty argument with the religious argument. More peace and less arguing over religion meant less religious war, meant more cooperation and the emergence of a common nationality, and meant the eventual inception of a German kind of nationalism. Yet, though it is tempting to go over the top and argue that because of religious freedoms the Holy Roman Empire became Germany, what we forget during the 150 plus years before the abolition of the office of Holy Roman Emperor is that even with the religious articles, the Holy Roman Emperor remained in place. Whatever his subjects may have felt about their religious freedoms, he was not about to let them detach themselves from the Holy Roman Empire and form their own nation-states. On top of this, nationalism never reared its head until the 1848 revolutions in any kind of recognisable form. Before then, the Holy Roman Empire regularly fought amongst itself over petty issues of inheritance, power and status. These German states didn't need religion, in other words, to create conflict amongst themselves, 
They simply continued with the rivalries and squabbles, which had been inherited from centuries of history already, with a notable exclusion this time of religion. In short then, the connection Westphalians had for so long sought to make between religion and sovereignty doesn't work, and that again is why we gave the anti-Westphalians the point in the first category. Here though, can we really award a point again to the anti-Westphalians? In a sense, you could say it's a draw. Westphalians had their empire-wide religious toleration, which even Louis XIV would have to respect when he goes gobbling up Alsace and Lorraine, two Holy Roman Empire designates protected by the religious rulings. At the same time, though, anti-Westphalians are right too. Religious warfare did not end after 1648, and as we've seen, Europeans did not throw down their crucifixes and take up arms for other causes instead. It was far from an automatic transition, and right up until the 20th century, religion played a huge role in how a state presented itself. Penal laws remained in place in Ireland until 1829. Until that date, Catholics in Ireland couldn't sit in Parliament at all, purely because of their religious persuasion. So it's a bit rich for Westphalians to dress the religious articles of the Peace of Westphalia up as much as they have done. If we could compromise, we would say that the Religious articles of the Peace of Westphalia are overrated, which would surely satisfy the anti-Westphalians, but I would still feel compelled to hand a point over to the Westphalians here. Ending religious warfare across Europe may have been out of the Peace of Westphalia's hands, but it did end religious warfare in the Holy Roman Empire, or at the very least, it massively toned it down. For that hugely significant act alone, While it is definitely close, I'd have to give the point to the Westphalians. Which brings us now to Category 3, Conflict and Peace. Before I knew or understood anything about the Thirty Years' War or the Peace of Westphalia, I assumed that 1648 stood for the point where peace became more prevalent and Europeans stopped fighting amongst themselves. Of course... Take one look at history and you know that that doesn't happen. But does that mean that the Peace of Westphalia didn't stand for European peace? War continued in Europe in many respects, unchanged from the awful form it took during the Thirty Years' War. What does become more important are sieges, interestingly enough, as Louis XIV's wars will make clear. But other than that, soldiers still devastate the land, great figures still fight wars for power, glory and influence, and war in general remains a tool of foreign policy. You never really see much widespread condemnation of war, such as the kind I expected to find when investigating the period. What's the big deal with the Peace of Westphalia then, if everyone just carries on regardless? Westphalians may argue that the Peace of Westphalia is important purely because it ended the Thirty Years' War, particularly in Germany. By this logic, the Peace of Westphalia is important because it is the peace treaty, which brought its conflict to an end, just like the Congress of Vienna is important for Napoleon and Versailles is important for the First World War. We may look at these peace treaties and think they weren't all that, but historians still uphold them as important moments in European development and history because they ended really terrible wars and ushered in peace, however temporary, between the powers of the day. 
Westphalians would argue that we don't look at the Congress of Vienna or the Treaty of Versailles and question their legitimacy. We instead take the peace deals for what they were, important watershed moments in history, when diplomacy won out and war came to an end. Why can't we look at the Thirty Years' War and the Peace of Westphalia in the same light? Does this argument even hold water at all? In a sense it does. As bad as the Wars of the Reformation had been before, and as bad as the Habsburg-Bourbon rivalry had been in the past, those squabbles were nothing compared to the Thirty Years' War. It was a colossal, all-consuming conflict which bankrupted princes and destroyed state infrastructure. What was more, conflict reigned for three decades, an incomparably long time when you consider that economies back then depended on agriculture and the steady flow of certain goods, all of which were torpedoed when bandits ruled and there was so much constant pillage in the village. In times past, even I erroneously stated that the terrible nature of the Thirty Years' War convinced the participants that such a war should never be fought again, and that war from 1648 onwards was somehow less bad. War of course continued without any reference to how bad it had been in the past, because human beings never seem to learn, but at the very least there was no conflict as long in duration as the Thirty Years' War to hit Europe in, well, since the Thirty Years' War. It is on this basis that the Thirty Years' War was an era-defining conflict, which was never replicated in such levels of intensity or duration again, and that because the Peace of Westphalia ended it, that that treaty is highly significant, that Westphalians argue their case. There is a measure of fairness in the point of view that the Peace of Westphalia is important simply because it ended the Thirty Years' War. I don't think anyone, even the anti-Westphalians, would dispute the idea that ending the Thirty Years' War was a good thing. On the other hand, though, anti-Westphalians would argue against placing such an emphasis on the importance of the peace for the sake of it. Once again, anti-Westphalians argue from the point of view of application, just as surely as the religious articles of the Peace of Westphalia didn't apply to the European continent. So too did the Peace of Westphalia not guarantee any kind of peace among the European powers. A case could be made, granted, for German history being less conflict-ridden after the Peace of Westphalia, but even then, look at the wars of Frederick the Great between 1740 to 80, and you'll see a Hellyerman Empire in just as many pieces as during the Thirty Years' War. The wars may not have been continuous, but if we take for granted the fact that the interested parties weren't always fighting during the Thirty Years' War, especially in the 1620s and in the 1640s leading up to the Peace of Westphalia, then it becomes relatively easy to argue that the formula of conflicts seen in the Thirty Years' War was replicated elsewhere. Look at Louis XIV's era of rule, where from 1667 to 1714, Europe was in total peace for less than ten non-consecutive years. Ten non-consecutive years. Everywhere you looked, a new war was being started at that stage. In 1672, in 1682, in 1702, all of these milestones in European history were peppered with conflicts, and they contained anecdotes just as devastating to Europe as the Thirty Years' War had been, some even more so. For example, the French devastation of the Palatinate in the late 1680s and early 1690s, ostensibly to prevent the enemies of France from using the lands along the Rhine for forage, still features in the memory of many towns there, which were burned to the ground and forced to rebuild anew elsewhere. 
So not only were the horrendous tactics of the Thirty Years' War repeated ad nauseum in the second half of the 17th century, but France and Spain actually remained at war until 1659, Spain and Portugal until 1667, and by that point France and Spain were at war again. The point is, anti-Westphalians like to emphasise, European history didn't abruptly end and enter a new phase after 1648 when the Thirty Years' If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Years War supposedly ended. The Thirty Years War, war itself, continued on in different spurts and related conflicts, which in turn spawned further conflicts, which in their turn led to a reigniting of conflict across the wider continent. That's why we cannot overestimate the significance of the Peace of Westphalia, it didn't end anything in practical terms. Competition remained alive and warfare was the constant companion to this competition. Religion wasn't the driving factor, I think we've established that, but statesmen and rulers made it clear on numerous occasions that if they couldn't use one thing as an excuse, they'd use another one. We forget that the Thirty Years' War didn't end anything because we have become victims of the idea that history exists in boxes. Yet, without the Thirty Years' War, there would have been no wars of Louis XIV. No Anglo-Dutch wars, and certainly no wars of the Spanish succession. Without the actions of Brandenburg in the meantime, there may have been no Frederick the Great of Prussia. Think of it this way. Without the First World War, there was no Second World War. Anti-Westphalians argue that, emphasising the importance of the Peace of Westphalia, 
causes us to miss the nuances of the rest of the 17th century and dislocates us from the actual flow of history. Just as surely as we'd never understand or appreciate the 20th century if we merely looked at the Treaty of Versailles and argued that it was super important because it ended the First World War. Peace treaties ending wars is all well and good, but the realist knows that just because the peace is signed, it doesn't mean that the war has been driven out of everyone's minds, and it certainly doesn't mean that the rivalry or competition is over either. It is for this reason that I feel the argument of Westphalian significance for the sake of peace falls flat. The peace of Westphalia brought about the end of the Thirty Years' War, true enough, but that's all we can attribute to it historically. It didn't cure conflict, it didn't make Europeans less likely to make war for any number of reasons, and it didn't end any kind of era. Before this, I had it in my head that at this point I was going to pose the idea, a new theory of my own, that the death of Louis XIV represented a more significant milestone than the Peace of Westphalia, because at that point war becomes less prevalent at last, well, for a little while anyway. Then I remembered that there was this thing called the War of the Quadruple Alliance four years later, spearheaded by Louis' grandson at the helm of Spain, and I realised I knew nothing at all. But this proves an important point. History was never meant to provide us with easy-to-delineate borders of conflict or time periods that we could put in boxes, because as large plots of land, led by reckless and self-interested human beings, states could never behave in a way that was anything other than chaotic, and utterly unpredictable. That's why history unfolded the way it did, and continues to unfold the way it does. Human beings decide when they want to stop fighting, and let's just say that no peace treaty led them to that decision for a very long time. And certainly not the Peace of Westphalia. So after all that, we come to an impasse. What's more important, that the Peace of Westphalia ended the Thirty Years' War, or that war continued after the Thirty Years' War very much the same as it did before, with no genuine restrictions on causation or general horribleness for all involved. If that was the question we were tasked with answering today, I'd say I'd have to give both sides one point each. But that's not our mission. We instead are asking whether Westphalia is overrated. This means that if you, like me, were of the opinion that war became less involved, less deadly, less expensive or somehow less total, then you would have to acknowledge that you'd been duped. As we saw the Peace of Westphalia achieved none of these objectives historians have since assigned to it, because it was never tasked with achieving them in the first place. It's not like everyone at Westphalia sat around and was like, how do we make peace for eternity? No one would have been that naive. It is for this reason that I must give a point to the anti-Westphalians. This means we end the scoreboard with 2-1 to the anti-Westphalians, and it also means we've accomplished our task. So, WDF Asks has established that the Peace of Westphalia is overrated. We looked at both sides, we considered what the Peace of Westphalia means in the general trend of history, and once we dispelled much of the myths that surrounded it, I feel it's hard to conclude on any other point of view than, yes, the Peace of Westphalia is overrated. Don't get me wrong, the Peace of Westphalia is an important treaty. Perhaps it's the most important treaty of the 17th century. If this was a question of whether the Peace of Westphalia did important things, 
1648 would have my historical blessing. But unfortunately for you Westphalians, I really can't support it. We have to look at the facts. Warfare continued as though nothing had changed after 1648, and in many cases it grew worse and more involved, as technologies developed and states departed from the practice of mercenaries and turned to their own populations, think the French Revolution in particular. Similarly, sovereignty and the balance of power, those two chestnuts which have nourished us for years, and which have been pointed to by so many as the shining reason why the Peace of Westphalia is the most significant peace treaty of early modern Europe, these were all premises, as we discovered, that were built on nothing but hot air. The Peace of Westphalia didn't invent sovereignty, nationalist historians writing in the 19th century did, when they retrospectively looked at what had befallen Europe, when they drew on their experiences from the French Revolution and the arming of populations, and when the whole continent seemed up in arms. Feeling inspired by the teachings and passions of their day, they looked to their past with rose-tinted glasses and saw what their contemporary circumstances influenced them to see. Taking their cue from self-serving Franco-Swedish diplomats, they built their case upon the premise that the unnatural Habsburg Holy Roman Empire had once suppressed all of Germany, but that after the Peace of Westphalia, it could not. By injecting history with their own perspective, they clouded the truth of what occurred in 1648 for so many historians. Only the very brave few willing to traverse the density of the politics of the Holy Roman Empire or patient enough to come to terms with the true meaning of the Peace of Westphalia could dispel these myths. At the same time, what shines through from the Westphalians' camp is the impact that the Peace of Westphalia had on the Holy Roman Empire's religious quarrels, which for decades had defined great portions of the empire and divided its princes into distrustful religious blocks. 1648 resembled a measure of live and let live, but critically only in the Holy Roman Empire. The rest of Europe was free to suppress and suffocate its different religious persuasions, and it was largely content to do so, in spite of the high-minded, let's be honest, religious principles historians often associate with the Peace of Westphalia. We could therefore simply stop here and say, while the Peace of Westphalia was important for the religious impact it had on the Holy Roman Empire, it was massively overrated in almost every other aspect. Yet to do so and leave it at that misses the point. We have found out the grounds on which we can declare the Peace of Westphalia to be overrated, and we have investigated it through three major categories as you know, but shouldn't we be asking another question as well? Shouldn't we be asking how these peace treaties came to be so overrated in the first place? I know, I know, we already answered that in a way. It became overrated because of Franco-Swedish propaganda and nationalist historians. But are these the only reasons why? Does it not say something about the way we study history and the way we approach it that so many of us were content to accept 1648 as a kind of cut-off point in history? A cut-off point which was bookended by the Peace of Westphalia? It made sense to us, in a way, that history would need such a cut-off point. But is it right to be looking for cut-off points or defining moments that help us separate one era of history from the next? Let me explain what I'm trying to get at here with a little anecdote from college. So, when I was in college, I had one professor who was adamant that there was a second Thirty Years' War roughly spanning the two world wars at the beginning of the 20th century. 
Yet, though we trotted out the usual examples, and though we had a lot of interesting debates at the time, it took me a good while to realise how wrong such an approach was. It's wrong for a somewhat specific reason, but one which is highly relevant to us. If you're trying to prove a historical point, if you're trying, despite yourself, to put history into different boxes, then you will clip bits off that don't fit, you will squeeze issues and characters into your box and hope that they go unnoticed, you will miss things entirely, deliberately or by accident, because you are only looking for things that fitted your idea of what that history was. Another one of my better professors used to say, in what may sound like a dull class since it was called Debates in History, was the interesting point that people didn't live their lives 100, 200, 3 or 400 years ago, safe in the knowledge that we would be putting them into boxes. What he meant by that was, a person lived, they died, and if they were unfortunate, they fought in wars. They loved, they lost, and they coped as best as they could, and human history advanced through both good and bad times. Just think, how horrified would those people be if they discovered how determined we were now to belittle them or their experiences? To simplify their lives, or to overlook what they really went through, or to avoid the issues that really mattered to them or their country men and women, just so we could package everything into neat little eras and say that before this point X, after this point Y. Theories honestly wreck my head. I hate when there are two clear-cut sides to the debate and a student is told he can only identify with one or the other, even though the student knows full well that both sides have merit and both sides have shortcomings. In this situation, the student has to pick one side or the other, so for us he has to pick Westphalian or anti-Westphalian, just as historians do in this debate. Yet, as I hope you've noticed by now, I fully appreciate that both sides of the argument have weight. What you might not be expecting, though, is that I now want to throw these sides of the argument, these distinctions, in the bin. That's right, after using them for the whole course of this series, I now want to bin them. Why, you may be asking, why do I want to throw away anti-Westphalian and Westphalian as historical distinctions? Well, because, by forcing ourselves to pick one side or the other, we miss out on what's really important. The history. We cannot deny that religious differences in the Holy Roman Empire were greatly soothed by the passing of the Peace of Westphalia, just as surely as we can't pretend that those treaties brought about a new era of sovereignty among nations. What we can do, instead of taking one side or the other, is look at both sides, nod respectfully and say... Here's what I think, while you take points from both. It'd be unrealistic, and you'd surely be deluding yourself, if you think you can securely take one side without any reservations. History isn't a political party. You don't have to tirelessly support one point of view, in spite of glaring contradictions or controversies. Instead, look at the facts and come up with your own perspective. If historians had done that in the past, if they'd only sought to investigate rather than place history in boxes or take certain sides, everything may have turned out different. We may never have been faced with the situation where the Peace of Westphalia is so misunderstood. And not only that, but more students could have been better positioned to study and thus further our understanding of the Thirty Years' War if they were led into the era and told to think for themselves rather than being handed the two different schools of thought and told to debate them. Now granted, we really just invented out of thin air the Westphalian or anti-Westphalian distinctions, 
but they do exist even though they're not named as such, so I feel it's relevant to have both used them and then throw them in the bin by the time we get to the end of the debate. But as you can really see, we didn't necessarily need them to actually answer the question of whether Westphalia was overrated or not. All we needed was their perspectives, and then we reached our own conclusions. Instead of taking a stance before we even get there then, let's just approach the piece of Westphalia and see what we can learn from it. Let's see what we can uncover from the people that acted, the fortunes that were lost or the big victories that did occur. Just like we shouldn't put our timeline in a box and be so determined to begin every narrative after 1648, or apply distinctions to a peace treaty that were never applied at the time, so too should we not say that it's one or the other. I'm neither a Westphalian nor an anti-Westphalian, and while I do believe that historians have overrated the Peace of Westphalia, I still believe at the same time that it was an important milestone in human history, and that it deserves, critically, to be studied. It's not about the post-Westphalian or pre-Westphalian age. It's about stories, struggles, victories, underdogs, war, peace, and of course, diplomacy. Just as surely as we can reinterpret what the Peace of Westphalia means for history, I'd like to think we can throw caution to the wind a bit when studying history and take our scientific glasses off from time to time. On the surface, you may think we've gone off topic to a dangerous degree here. But here's the thing. When I began this series, I wrote up nearly 10 pages on why it was so important to not put history in boxes. Then I realised I'd gotten off topic. But I also appreciated that some fire within me had been lit and I felt that my passions were worth sharing here. The reason why we don't understand the Peace of Westphalia, and the reason why we have to even ask if it is overrated, is because for so long history books began or ended at 1648. Through that hugely significant fact alone, generations of historians implied that the Peace of Westphalia was a watershed moment, and when enough people parroted this view, a consensus started to emerge. By breaking through this consensus, by asking is Westphalia overrated, we have succeeded not just in giving a different perspective on this era of history, but we've also challenged you to think outside the box. Just imagine how many other Westphalias may be out there, waiting to be deciphered and reinterpreted for a modern audience. Just imagine the myths that are waiting to be dispelled, or the truths that are waiting to be uncovered. You see, history deserves better than slapping our own classifications or terminology onto it. Just like history loses much of its luster if we become bogged down in debating finer points and trying to identify ourselves into different debating groups. History won't thank us for sitting on the debating team and arguing that sovereignty was brought up in the Peace of Westphalia, darn it, because of X, Y and Z, without actually investigating, for example, what sovereignty meant to people. In 1648. We learn from history, we benefit from history and we answer the great questions of history by looking into the past and assessing the facts as they are. The Peace of Westphalia is overrated, but that doesn't mean that its treaties mean nothing or meant nothing to the people that spent nearly four years negotiating their way towards the signing of it, and it doesn't mean that we can't learn anything from it either. So this is in many ways a cautionary conclusion. The Peace of Westphalia has been overrated by historians because for too long they were content to accept its myths. These myths became so impenetrable and the consensus so assured that people came to forget what actually happened in 1648. And that's not right. 
Soon it was taken for granted that the Peace of Westphalia meant a certain thing, and ushered in a certain something else, and before you knew it, everything began after 1648. Nothing to see here, keep moving on. If we want our history to be box-free, if we want the stories to flow and the actual people to shine through it, then we need to look for connections, rather than eras. We need to say, this war affected this country, and this country then did this, and then it made peace, and then this happened. But what we don't need is to state that this war affected this country, and then this country did this, and then it made peace, and then the end. I hope you get me, because as much as I've loved investigating whether Westphalia is overrated, I couldn't help but groan and gasp when I read some of the histories of the period, and realised just how misinformed some actual professionals are. I groaned because these historians presented history in a pretty package, tied up and bookended by different peace treaties, Westphalia, Vienna, Versailles, etc. If you pick up a book that claims to survey early modern Europe, most will begin in 1648 and skim up to 1945. See, historians like their 300-year periods of history because it seems nice and neat. It appears straightforward with the different chapters of history easily identifiable, But the most galling thing we forget is that the people who signed those treaties and fought those wars hundreds of years ago, the people who made those neat packages, they never imagined they would be a certain chapter in someone's book, divided from what happened before by a few lines of text, explaining a classification from history that's largely been made up by people writing hundreds of years later. To use a somewhat crude metaphor, It's like when the British evacuated India after partitioning it in the 1950s. Rather than consult local leaders or even a history book, red lines were drawn on a map which cut through communities, villages, families, and even, like, wells in some cases. All involved scrambled to secure their loved ones, to make sure they didn't end up in Pakistan or India and thus outside of their desired zone. Then the atrocities began as different people attacked and committed outrages against one another. It was a terrible time to live in India, and the British enacted the partition because they believed that they were providing a clear-cut solution, which would erase old rivalries and complications. Ugh, I feel a bit awful comparing such a grim period of history to this now. But think of India as the historical timeline, and Britain as the gleeful historian slapping a red line across it, so that the region is divided according to its judgments. In the aftermath, the British action left many people behind, and many important distinctions, identities and families were lost or separated forever. Similarly, in the aftermath of our history, this invasive and ignorant red line has actually severed old parts of history from the new, and masked the fact that some stories and some anecdotes needed these parts to function. The history may be neatly divided, and perhaps it reads more straightforwardly, but no historian will ever tell himself with certainty that the dividing line was anything other than crude and limiting. So as a result, we have the Peace of Westphalia. It just kind of sits there because nobody seems to know enough about it to question its existence, and nobody knows much about what happened after it, either. So rather than dwell on it, rather than dwell on the partition, we accept the divide and incorporate it into our studies and move on. People's lives are cut off from what they did before 1648, the origins of conflicts, the true nature of how the Holy Roman Empire works, the development and furthering of religious differences across Europe, the reasoning behind expansion into the New World, 
the cultivation of new rivalries and the ambitions of stately figures. All of these are issues which the Thirty Years' War and thus the Peace of Westphalia spawned or significantly added to. Therefore, to truly grasp history, we have to grasp it all. When Diplomacy Fails' virtual motto with this stage, thanks to the Tudors, is to get to the heart of the story, you have to go back to the beginning. And it rings true again here. We would never begin a history book halfway through and expect to know what's going on. Yet so many narratives do this when they begin their tale in 1648. To cover up what they left behind, they simply leave bits out. Through such actions, not only do they cheapen and dull the appeal of history by cutting out some potentially fascinating bits, but they also add to the illusion that the Peace of Westphalia was in the past, that it's outside the realm of examination, that it's somehow untouchable now. WDF Asks sought to combat this trend, and hopefully you now see its dangers, and you want to go out there and investigate for yourself. History, for sure, needs people like you. So this was WDF Asks' first ever episode. Here we asked, is Westphalia overrated? And we turned out some interesting facts in the course of our investigation. We concluded that Westphalia is in fact an overrated treaty, but that we can still learn from it and should stop trying to simplify history at the expense of the facts. I hope that this has been a rewarding and enlightening experience for you guys. And if you want to let me know what you thought, send me a mail or a message through the usual channels because I love to read. So, did you hate this? Did I ramble too much? God, no. Do you want to see more of this kind of thing, you crazy person? I want to know. My name is Zach, and this has been our first series of WDF Asks. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.